0: We're getting nowhere because the thinking that we're using to address the uh, the problems is the same thinking that's creating them, and so it's really easy to get distracted um, by the alarms that are ringing, and like you said, there are many, um, and that that pulls us into reaction mode that has been long steeped in industrial responsiveness, which is to the first order. that is, if, <clears throat> if if something is happening we want to stop that thing from happening, whatever it is, whether it's a refugee crisis or a nuclear war threat or a this or a that. Um, and that first order response does not take into account the next and the next and the next order of consequences. So um, it's a kind of thinking that is very much um, appropriate for, for engineering, for building machines, but it's not appropriate for complex living systems in particular.
1: Welcome to Entangled World, where we explore our interrelated existential, social, economic, ecological, and technological challenges their underlying drivers, and how a more beautiful world might emerge. I'm your host, Nadia Shawkat Lapsan. I'm a daughter of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, a mom, and an inter-systems thinker. Join me on a journey to discover what is uniquely and meaningfully ours to do at this pivotal moment in time, in service to the sacredness of life quick note before we get started, if you haven't already listened to the first full episode of this podcast called What is the Metacrisis? I highly recommend you go back and listen to that first. It's really a foundational episode that provides a lot of the grounding that is important for all the episodes that follow. I'm so excited to share that my guest today is the brilliant Nora Bateson. I am such a Nora fangirl, her work has been truly life-changing for me, and in fact, doing her warm data host training really shifted something in me and helped me to get unstuck from a rut I had been in for a while. Nora Bateson is an award-winning filmmaker, research designer, writer, educator, international lecturer as well as the president of the International Bateson Institute, based in Sweden. She's also the creator of the warm data theory and practices. Nora's work brings together the fields of biology, cognition, art, anthropology, psychology, and information technology together into a study of the patterns in ecology of living systems. Her work asks the question, how can we improve our perception of the complexity we live within so we may improve our interaction with the world? Nora has written two absolutely beautiful thought-provoking books, Small Arcs of Larger Circles, and her latest book, Combining, where Nora challenges conventional fixes for our problems, highlighting the need to tackle issues at multiple levels, understand interdependence and embrace ambiguity. Nora and I talk about double binds, which in some cases are similar to multipolar traps or predicaments that feel impossible to get out of what we might call lose-lose situations. Nora says in these situations, the question becomes, how do we move with our predicament in a way that allows movement? And so we talk about how we can't solve our current global challenges Or the metacrisis with direct correctives. Nora says you don't meet something head on, you meet it around, you meet it within, you meet it totally. In ecological systems, nothing is happening one thing at a time. There's not a solution to a problem. We also discuss that while we can point to aspects of the metacrisis with language and statistics and measurements, that the real issues are insidious and underground and our baseline presumptions of what our understanding of what life is. I absolutely loved this conversation, and I hope you do too. Hi, Nora. How are you today?
0: I'm really happy to be here with you.
1: I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for taking time. I'm a huge fan of your work. We met back in July in London when I had the absolute privilege of doing your warm data lab host training. And uh, we were just talking about this offline. But even though you had COVID, you guys figured out a creative way to still deliver the training virtually. And it was amazing. And it was incredible. And I highly recommend anyone who has an opportunity to do the training to take the time. I promise you, you will not regret it.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, many of our listeners know and love your work. And yet I'd still love to start us off by just asking how you might introduce yourself in this moment.
0: (laughs) That's always an interesting question, isn't it? Yep. And I knew it would be for you. (laughs) Um, Well, well. It is. It's always an interesting question because I, I think one of the things I'm most interested in is how in relationship and in our communication, we can get out of the habits of putting each ourselves and each other in various reductionist boxes. So I would like to say, I'm not sure yet who I am in this conversation. Because we haven't had the conversation yet.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, that question of, well, who am I when I'm with you? And who are you when you're with me? And who, what what path is open before us? And if I say all of that, then I sound like I'm trying to be extremely vague and cute. And really, <laughs> I, I might be both, but I'm not trying to be either. For <laughs> us... Um, it's actually i think important in this moment of trying to get out of orientation to these structures and habits semantics um and 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 epistemological patterns that that lock us into the kind of thinking that is the source of the colonial violence and the industrial violence that we're living within. And we do it to ourselves and each other as a courtesy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it, you know, it's, this is a difficult one. I, I, I get introduced as somebody who makes films and writes books and teaches classes. And I'm, um, Some people like to say that I'm Gregory Bateson's daughter, which that's totally true. um, There's a lot more to it than that. I promise you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But um, here we are. And I'm really happy to be here with you. How about that? I
1: love it. That's wonderful and perfect, as always. (laughs) (laughs) So we are facing... A complex set of entangled global crises, right? Hence the name of this podcast. And whether it's climate change or biodiversity loss or vast income inequality, failing health and education systems, nuclear war risk, like the list is long, right? And many people call this the meta crisis or the poly crisis. And Part of why we're in this mess is that, particularly in the West, we've created an industrial society based on mechanistic perceptions of how things work, okay. right. And so uh, we split issues into categories. We create institutions and separate nonprofits. We hire the smartest people who work really hard to solve these wicked issues. And yet, we are getting nowhere.
0: Why are we getting? nowhere? We're getting nowhere because the thinking that we're using to address the, uh, the problems is the same thinking that's creating them. And so it's really easy to get distracted um, by the alarms that are ringing. And like you said, there are many. Um, and that, that pulls us into reaction mode that has been long steeped in industrial responsiveness, which is to the first order. That is, if <clears throat> if, if something is happening, we wanna stop that thing from happening, whatever it is, whether it's a refugee crisis or a nuclear war threat or a this or a that. Um, and that first order response does not take into account, the next and the next and the next order of consequences. So um, it's a kind of thinking that is very much um, appropriate for for engineering, for building machines, but it's not appropriate for complex living systems in particular. Um, they do not respond at only first order. So if you have a kid that is. Sick or not doing well in something, you want to make them better and or help them do better at gym class. But the odds are that there are conditions, there are other processes that that causality is not singular. And so, if you address a problem that's created by a multiple causal process with a singular response you don't actually do anything but make it worse and that make it worse is is very often um ported over to different contexts so um you know you might take medications for depression that then reduce your sex life and then your marriage starts to fall apart so it it's not that it didn't address your depression it's just that something else falls apart that is um, in another context. So this is this transcontextual problem. Um, and uh, honestly, it feels like there has been sort of one of two responses to this for so many years, decades, working in this. I get one of two responses. One is, oh, that's too much. We can't possibly take all those contexts into consideration. Okay, well, I don't actually disagree with that, but you can take a lot more than you are mm-hmm. and have a lot more information. Um, and the other one is, well, if we just had a big enough spreadsheet, we could get the data in, and then we could get, you know, something like AI or some other, you know, some other computational process in to help us deal with all this complexity, because our little brains can't handle it. And my feeling about this is that actually no i choose neither of those Mm -hmm. um all day every day you're actually working and doing life within all kinds of complex relational processes you don't name them but you do it just being with your kid or walking your dog or gardening or being with your husband or walking into a office building you are taking into yourself so much information from so many different contexts and it's it's reverberating and resonating with your own experiences um and 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 you're already there we're already there this is how we do it we're alive as a living system you already are complex the world around you is also complex so um There's a lot of double binds Mm -hmm. and the double binds are, um, they are creating the experience that it is impossible to sort out the problems that have been created by such entanglement in the past. This feeling like we can't figure, we can't solve this problem or that we can't undo the ecological issues we can't undo the the political strife that's in the middle east we can't undo that the history is too long and too rich and too thick and too heavy the 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 wounds are too deep we can't undo colonialism Mm -hmm. so that feeling of impossibility then um puts us in a very difficult moment in the present of recognizing, okay, here we are in this moment. And the time before has brought all these weird configurations that we're living in. And how then do we move with them in a way that allows movement? I'm interested in that. Mm. Since we can't undo it, what does movement from here look like?
1: I think many of us working in areas of social impact are so focused on how do we create the change? What are the actions that we take? And there was one of the things that you said um, during the warm data training that I starred and <laughs> underlined. And you said, you said, there's no such thing as non action, mm-hmm. and that a change in perception is a change. In action, That's right. and and that was like an aha moment for me because oftentimes you think of an action as like I do something and then I see the result from the action I can discern it right mm-hmm. and and you've created this beautiful new word which I absolutely love afani poesis it, it just rolls off the tongue afani poesis <laughs> I love it <laughs> um which means a a coalescing of unseen factors toward vitality and and you say it's unseen but it's not hidden it's just out of our habituated perception and so I guess my question is how do we how do we continually expand our perception right like we can't we can't predict the nth order effects of our actions we can't take into account every single factor that might influence it but i think we can expand our perception and so how do we do that how do we get into a
0: habit of doing that Mm -hmm. well there are some things that you can do i mean it's a practice i would say um The process that, that I developed called the warm data lab or the people need people processes are both absolutely created to allow for new perceptions to bubble up between old ones, um, that those processes are, um, are made for that. But there's a lot of other ones. Um, I think that it's also important to be a, in around people who are from different cultures, who you may have really unexpected misunderstandings with. Hmm. And that feeling of disorientation of, well, I, I thought this was the situation. And what I find in those moments is that my own cultural expectations are invisible to me. Until I am reflected back that somebody else sees something very differently. And then I realize, oh, this is one of one million presuppositions I'm carrying that are only baked in my cultural experience. This is not how life is. Yeah right? So that experience of being, of being dislodged or disoriented from the way you think life is, is yeah. very important for this sensitivity. Um, another way to do that is, of course, with art and music, because art and music, well, art is music and music is art, but, but the arts pull us into ways of perceiving that are nonverbal, and that in, uh, that integrate um, all the various processes of our our sensitivities, um, particularly art that you don't understand mm.
2: mm-hmm.
0: is important. Um, and then also, I would say, playing with synesthesia. So yeah. those moments when you might. Um Just challenge yourself from time to time. You know what what does that texture of wood down like? What is the way that I would draw the flavor of that soup? What is the way that I might um, give words? to the rhythm of the, those boiling bubbles. Okay, so the, these processes where you're crisscrossing your sensory habits and, and this is important as a practice because um, our senses get habituated. And we see this in exercises all the time where there's some unexpected thing that occurs in the screen and no one sees it because they weren't looking for it. Mm -hmm. And so I think we should just take for granted from go that there's an awful lot happening that we are not perceiving. And so how that that attention to, to our own perception and watching out for those places where we've been so grooved in, because because school, because life, because language, because culture, because all sorts of things. So how how to shake those grooves? And, and they, but the thing is, they need to be um, met in ways that are not exactly direct corrective. So, mm-hmm. in each of these examples, what I'm suggesting is a is an exercise or a process, a practice out here, but what's actually happening in your sensory processes that's up to them that's up to your own body knowledge, your own cultural impressions, your dream world, your right these places that are so deep down there is no language there and and so I think that, that in my estimation, even though we can point with language and statistics and all sorts of measurements to all the aspects of what we might call the meta crisis or the poly crisis, the real issues are insidious. They're underground. They're down in our, our baseline premises of understanding what life is and what it means to ask what's in it for me. What's mm. the point of this? Where is this going? What am I going to get out of this? Right. These type of questions that have to do with in some way embellishing our individual, um, uh, take back are, Deeply and totally unecological responses. So they're disrupting our possibility for perception.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I always say that the most dangerous question in the English language is "What's in it for me?" There's so much in that one. There's <laughs> so much there.
0: Or what's the point? Yeah. And, and what's the point is a question that leads you immediately to a linear causal derivative um, or deliverable that's going to be a takeaway. What's it? What, you know, what's the point? What am I going to get out of this? It's the same question, actually. Yeah. Yeah. What's the point? Um, Yeah. Something a meadow never asks. (laughs) Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love, I love how you, you talk about art and music and poetry and the blending of these different sort of mediums of communication to communicate. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things in your, your, this, this wonderful, beautiful book that you've just written combining. One of the things I love about it is it's, yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not a book. It's like a It's like a juicy experience. You go through it and there's beautiful images and there's poetry and there's things written upside down. It's just it's amazing. So thank you so much for writing it. First of all, I'd highly recommend everybody go out and get the book. And and there's this there's this piece in your book called Tearing and Mending. And in it, you write. In the singularity of its mission to hastily fix one malady at a time, the cure may be more harmful than the wound. Mm -hmm. You say, most identified problems as they have emerged are really the consequence or symptoms of other conditions. The solution to the consequence is likely to perpetuate the actual problem. Mm -hmm. And so... I was thinking about this, and I think an example of this might be the Green Revolution, right? We were trying to solve the problem of world hunger, and so we started using a ton of pesticides to grow food, and it worked in terms of volume of food produced. But now we have degraded soils, we have foods with low nutrient density, we have pesticide runoff in oceans that are causing you know, that are killing fish and causing algal blooms. And so the solutions often cause the problems. And so, and this is such a hard thing to get, especially if you are somebody who's working in systems change or you're trying to do something good for the world. Like, how do we go about creating social change when it feels like anything you do Will have negative, unintended consequences that you can't possibly perceive. It it can be paralyzing. How do you go about doing anything?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think, first of all, there's no action that is, every action is an action, even a non action. So you Mm -hmm. are doing something. The question is, what are you doing? And I, I think it's important to, um, I want to, I want to put two images side by side for you here. And one of them is the sustainable development goal logo. Okay. Mm -hmm. And here you have these brightly colored boxes and each one has a, um, a, a little logo inside that, that, that has a label. And one is, you know, life on land, life in the water, um, equality, no poverty, um, no hunger or whatever. There's there's 17 of them, well-being. And just notice that for a moment. And notice what does this image tell us about the culture into which it is being placed, into which it resonates. What does it tell us? We like little boxes. Mm-hmm. We like things that are labeled. Yep. And they're
1: neat little categories.
0: Right. This looks like practicality to us. This looks like action. This looks like possibility. Um, And then I want to put next to it another image. And that image, I'd like you to imagine a mother nursing her baby. Okay. And in that second image, notice. That in order to feed the babies, in order to have that, that relationship, which is nutritional, emotional, intellectual, it's, it's feeding both people's nervous system, um, as well as lots of other systems, metabolisms, and so on. Um, in order to have that happen, the mother has to breathe clean air and have clean water. In order to feed the babies, we have to have mothers and fathers that can actually take care of the, the land, the water, that the can't, they can't be going hungry, they can't be dying of poverty, they can't be in a state of non-well-being. And they have to be able to feed the babies, 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 babies. We are mammals. If we do not feed the babies, our species goes. It's basic this image of a mother feeding her baby is every single one of those sustainable development goals in another form. There are probably many other things that you could look at that would also hold all of the goals in them in one image. Um, But they look nothing like that blocked grid, okay? That blocked grid, which is also so much like the way a school system works or the way an e- economy works or the way a political system works or a health a healthcare process works so i i i just want to put those next to each other because i think if we're standing in the grid saying how do we fix the grid we're probably asking the wrong question i think what we're actually looking for is another a completely different kind of approach that that works like nature works and in that i mean the elegance of the breast that is warm and soft that produces this incredible nutritional milk that is actually also filled with um some of the worst chemicals and and pollutants mm-hmm. um that that there is The this noticing of how in ecological systems nothing is happening one thing at a time that's not the solution to one problem right this this yeah the continuation of the species it's the emotional building of connection it's it's physical it's emotional it's it's even microbiome biological right the 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 the, the various microbes are also being shared for immunity and, um, and, and all sorts of other things. So, so I think this is where we get into trouble is trying to solve problems in isolated ways. Now, I'll tell you what doesn't work, though, is clumping three SDGs together and thinking, OK, well, now we're going to do like nature because we're going to clump three of them together or four. Mm-hmm. And then we'll be doing systems work hmm. And then what you end up with is this, you know, what we need is a bigger um, spreadsheet. And that's not it. So, I mean, what, if, let's take it this way. Let's think of a song that's a, a favorite song. And then what if I asked you to say, OK, now let's pull out all the A notes. Let's pull out all the B notes. Let's pull out all the sharps. Let's pull out all the G notes. And and then we'll count them. And then we'll know what we need to know about how to fix this song. <laughs> it's ludicrous, right? So where yeah. is the actual music taking place? And what, what does the music do in your body? What does it allow you to imagine, to feel, to find expression for in life? And these things are so far out of reach of this way of dealing with first-order mechanistic industrial communication, which is why in combining, I tried to bring as much different texture, rhythm, um, metaphor, um, tone, atmosphere, um, vibe as possible. Style. Um, Some of it's very, very personal. Some of it's not. Some Mm -hmm. of it's super theoretical. Some of it's seemingly silly. Some of it is absolutely nonverbal. Some of it's surreal, actually.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And and that's because I'm wanting to allow that part of you that makes connections, that combines things. That's why it's called combining, because you, as a reader, are combining. Um, Just like you do when you listen to a piece of music. It's you that's combining those experiences those notes those rhythms in you or if you experience a piece of art or walk through the forest or whatever Mm -hmm. so actually i don't know it's a tall order that i'm asking for right now which is really a completely different approach And it's so unfamiliar to people that they often think that I'm being capricious or that I'm acting from some sort of privilege of not having to feel the pain of that um, hunger or the loss of my children or being in a political war zone, that these are the ruminations of somebody who can ruminate in this way but I I actually just want to say that it's on the contrary that I, I believe this to be a far more practical approach that it's very abstract to break life into boxes and create supposedly linear causal processes that's very abstract if you look at it from the perspective of how life works so the idea that that actually approaching from a way that that stitches life together and allows for a continued stitching together um combining and 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 healing that that's not abstract, but it's just so unfamiliar that it sounds abstract. A lot of times when people say that's abstract, what they mean is, "I don't get it." <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I think about
1: when babies are born, right? They are just naturally taking in the world, right? Before they have language, they don't separate things into little things and label them and say, this is this and this is that. They're just sort of like taking it all in. Mm. And in some ways, I wonder if just even the move to verbal language started to create some of the roots of the separation. Like we live in a deeply separated and divided world. And, and there are certain languages like English that are uh, much more individualistic, that aren't as relational. One of the things I was thinking about, so we grew up speaking Urdu in my household. And um, one of the things growing up that I thought was silly, but now I think is amazing, is that Urdu has different words for an uncle on your mom's side of the family versus an uncle on your dad's side of the family. Right. And so come from a big family lots of cousins and so there were all these different names to keep track of and to figure out who to call what and when i was younger i thought that was so silly like oh why do we make it so complicated in english it's just aunt and uncle and it's simple and now i see the beauty in that because it's describing a relationship Mm -hmm. in that word Mm -hmm. and so um you know, you look to certain indigenous languages that are much more relational in the ways in which uh, just how how things are labeled and how things are, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's words that describe experiences, Arabic, the same thing. And so part of me wonders, you know, we live in a world where English is the dominant language, and it is a language that tends to veer more towards separation. And is that
0: is that part of the problem that we're facing? Oh, undoubtedly, that's part of the problem. Um, and then add the the fracturing of our sense making processes that are happening via technological algorithms, which have separated things in another language, um, and the 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 way in which there is just the assumption that yeah, you know. Language class is different than math class, so it's different than art class, so it's different than a history class. How is that possible, actually? Mm-hmm. <laughs> actually. <laughs> so we are just living in a world, you know, you were talking about when a baby is born, they're just taking things in. And I love to think about that moment of pure possibility for what life might be. Hmm. That baby could be born in an era 10,000 years ago and would be coming into its world, learning to make sense of the relationships and the way that you survive in this world and what is the logic of this world. And that logic is very different in different places. What's What's the grain in the wood here? What's the hum of this song? And they're they're learning it through language, through you, you know, responses with people, through communication, through um and through relationship with the with the seasons and so on. Food, ritual. Um and so so I guess why I like to think about that is because I feel like it loosens up um what could be let's let's open up some possibilities here and i often feel that there's a kind of tyranny of um cynicism that holds the idea that yeah but this world that we live in this is how life is Mm, mm mm-hmm And so you can't question this because this is how life is. I mean, there are governments and this is how they work. And we have an economy. And if you don't understand economics, just keep your mouth shut because this is how it is. You're not a doctor. You don't know what you're talking about. So just don't because this is how it is. And... And then in the same breath, we're thinking we need to make systems change. We've got to have epistemological change. We've got to have, you know, entirely different habits of cognition. And yet this is how life is. And so for me, I think it's really important to to tickle that, to loosen it, to to start to approach things in really different ways because you get really different responses and then things are shifting. There it is. There's movement. But I'm looking for the movement. How do we sort of cultivate
1: an intuition for complex systems, right? For those second, third, nth order effects, how do we get the You always say, get it in your elbows, right? How do we get it into our elbows?
0: Practice. Mm -hmm. It's just practice. And I think it's, it's practice all day, every day. Every relationship, every conversation, every time you look in the mirror, every time you make a cup of tea, every time you say hello to somebody, every time you Your every communication is the practice. I often think being
1: a mother or being a parent is one of the best ways to get practice in this. Because as a parent, there's so many things that you're navigating. When that child is born, you know, you're trying to figure out how to keep it alive and how to feed it and all the growth and development and are they hitting their milestones and, da, 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 da. and and you're you're paying close attention I think to how you're communicating with that child because you you want to be a good parent you want to you know you want to raise them in the right way and I always say that my my son has been my greatest teacher she's <laughs> yeah. He's not been the easiest child for sure. We've had lots of challenges. He had a lot of medical challenges, but he's very opinionated. He's five years old and he's very strong and he knows what he wants. And, and, and I've had to figure out how do I, how do I move with this? Sometimes he can be very rigid and I've had to figure out like, how do I loosen this up a little bit? And I have to come at things in different ways right like when it's time to go to school and it's okay let's put your boots on it's time to go to school no no i don't want to if i keep pushing him to put his boots on guess what he's never going to put his boots on so now i gotta come up with some other way right and so i think about things like that and oftentimes nobody would really most people wouldn't say that sort of thinking in complexity or in Mm -hmm. systems thinking but i think it is i think that's. In the moment, you're you're working it out. You're figuring out. You're coming at it from different perspectives. You're looking at it in different ways. You're trying to put yourself in that person's shoes and trying to say, okay, why is, why is he being difficult today? What's going on today? You know, like all these things. And it's, yeah, and it's
0: about the relationship. It's very relational. Because it matters. And I think one of the things that you're describing is what it looks like. To try to do something without breaking something else. Yeah. So that is that second order thinking. So you could say, you know, damn it, we're going to stand here until you put those boots on. And if you don't put them on, I'm going to chop your head off. (laughs) Right. And he would eventually put them on and you would win. But you would lose. Right. At what cost? Right. So there it is. That's that thing of because of the relationship and because you are in a loving and, and also, let's face it, if you create a traumatized child, you then have to have the capacity for dealing with the traumatized child. Mm-hmm. So it's not just out of benevolence to him, but also that it's a lot easier to be in relationship with someone for the rest of your life that, uh, that you haven't damaged.
1: that's like the greatest fear as a parent like let me not damage my child (laughs) yes
0: how can i please not have them hate me when i'm (laughs) 18 and 16 and i really want to get to know my grandkids so if i can just get through this but but i think that's just it it's the the wanting to not make harm but we need to do some things but we don't want to create the consequences of of the damage so how do we do what we need to do in ways that go around that are not direct correctives it's only going to be industrial mechanistic processes that are super direct um but let me make a caveat on that because you can also have like a medical emergency where someone's bleeding out and you have to you have to make an, a response but even in that medical response it matters what the EMT practitioner is perceiving in the person? Do what are they perceiving? How are they perceiving that being? Um, and and the, because the way that they touch them, the way they talk to the other EMT teammates, the way that they are, the t- the tempo they move them with, they it, whatever it is, that communication is going to run through. And that's kind of what we're talking about, right? The communication I I feel when you're standing at the door with your five-year-old that won't put his boots on is also you're kind of being tested. So what is the communication that runs through here? Mm -hmm. What is it? What is the hum in our song, mom? How do things work around here? Mm -hmm. And when I think about just some of the simple things of the way in which so much parenting in, in at least on in some parts of the world has looked like punishment and reward um and then the difficulty that um surfaces in adult life with dealing with any kind of criticism or confrontation mhm and we think, oh, these are unrelated,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It goes back to that question of what's in it for me. Yeah, right. If you are raised in a sort of reward punishment environment, that question is always going to be on your mind,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's the wrong reason. I mean, what what is the reason for putting your boots on in the morning? If you don't want to go to school you'd rather stay home and you know that once those boots are on, you're on your way out the door, one way or another. Why would you want to put your boots on? And in the end, it's going to come down to his relationship with you. I'm going to put my boots on because I'm here with my mom and we got to go. (laughs) You know, but but that sort of rationality is not met head on. Hmm. You know, that's that's something that is, it's a logic that li- lives in an Afani poetic realm. It's, it's another place. So what I hear is this beautiful sort of searching for a way into another kind of communication that might open the door, right? And when you look mm-hmm. then at at combining, you'll see that's exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. yeah. So many different kinds of communications. Hopefully they'll open different doors. And when the doors start opening, maybe some cross breezes will begin. Maybe there'll be some cross fertilizations. Maybe there'll be some storms that can brew in there. Um, But there's movement. Instead of just stuck at the door with no boots on. (laughs) Yeah. I have a, have a, a bunch of kids too, so I... I've been spending quite a bit of time in my life at the door with the boots. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, if- I love how you
1: often talk about that. We have to meet the challenge True. and not match it. And this is like a—it's its so slippery. It's—it can be such a slippery concept. Because it means different things in different situations. It's not like a rule. It's not like, here's, I can tell you what to do in the situation. There's a, you've got to feel your way through what that means. And we all want the answer. We all want to know what, what, are, what is
0: thing to do? <laughs> and so that meet not match chapter is a hundred chapter. Mm-hmm. But I tried to actually make it as friendly as possible um, with stories, and um, and one of those stories is the story of getting lost in Argentina. Our- I love that story. Tell that story because I love that story. <laughs> that first story is, um, I guess, I, I was in outside the city of Buenos Aires with my two kids, and they were quite young. And we were visiting a friend on a Sunday, and we took a taxi out to her house. And what we didn't actually realize was that there weren't going to be any taxis available to go home on a Sunday afternoon. And the buses were going to be few and far between, and we didn't know how to take the buses. And actually, we didn't have any cash on us. So we got... (laughs) On a bus outside her house, not really knowing how to get home. And the bus started going in some direction. And I realized this is the wrong direction. <laughs> Uh-oh. And <laughs> we don't have any more money for the next bus. And oh no, it's Sunday and everything's closed. And um so eventually so I here I am with I'm with my little kids. And I was like, all right, so guess what guys we're lost (laughs) and they I was like look out the window and see if there's anything you remember and can you check your pockets and your backpacks and see if you guys have any coins? because I don't have any money for the next bus. anyway so between us we we started this sort of we entered the realm of and now we are lost together and uh we managed to get enough money to get on another bus sort of um and then it was going wrong way too. And then we got off that bus and it began to pour rain, like pour incredible amounts of water falling out of the sky. So we ran into this little restaurant and then the restaurant got, we sat down and we had something hot to drink and dried off a little bit. I mean, I have to this day, no idea where we were at that moment. And and then the guy at the restaurant was so cool. And he let us charge a little extra money so that we could get on the next bus. And he told us which bus we could get on. So I used my credit card and he put a little extra charge on them and then gave me the cash. And that bus never came. So we ended up still lost. Finally, we ended up somewhere. And Trevor looked out the window at my little son and he said, There's the zoo. I have been to the zoo. And so we got off and we went to the zoo. And when we got to the zoo, we knew where we were. We were still a long way from home. so But there were taxis there at the zoo. And so we got in a taxi and we, we talked to the taxi driver and explained what had happened. And he looked at us like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> what is going on here? And so he said, look, I'll take you to the ATM machine that's open and you can get the cash and you can pay me and then I'll take you home. So we had this whole adventure. We ended up in all these places we never would have been to. We did not ever figure out which bus would have been the right bus. Um, But we learned how to be lost together. Hmm. And that I have felt ever since that day was one of the most important days of this thing we call parenting. Hmm. Of, there's a lot of things that I will never be able to teach my children. I will never be able to give them the bus schedules of every city in the world so that they don't get lost. But I can embody with them the process of figuring it out when you don't know and making relationships with people you probably wouldn't have met before in, and figuring out solutions to things in the moment. Um, and that being lost together allowed for us to learn together, allowed for my kids to see me not being the one. Mommy doesn't know everything. Mm -hmm. Right. And it, it was really, really beautiful what happened with us that day. So another piece that's in that is actually my, um, husband and, my wedding vows. Mm. So that, that piece is in there because again, we were sort of asking the question before we got married. We had both been married before and we knew that, you know, marriage doesn't actually make it work. So what, and, and we, we knew also that we were getting married in a different sex, you know, we weren't, he had his kids, I had my kids. Well, so we were starting life in another at another place, and after studying quite a bit of complexity and systems <laughs> work, you know, you, you got to ask yourself the question: What do you actually want someone to promise you? Mm-hmm. Like, I love where, this piece. Yeah, where do you put the promise? And so, very often, that promise is at the 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 level of match. Okay. I want you to be with me forever. So promise me you're going to be with me forever,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? I want you to respect me. So promise me you're going to respect me. Um, and our vows are very different to that. Um, what we actually noticed that we wanted. Let me see. What we actually noticed that we wanted the last part of this chapter this is not an easy chapter
1: but i can't i loved i loved the vows that you guys wrote they were so beautiful um
2: uh yeah okay
0: um let's see where is it okay yeah I will promise you these things. These are the words that we said to each other. I promise to show you my whole self in so much as I can. I promise to speak and be in truth with you. I will not hide anything in so much as I can. I promise to learn with you and from you. I will share incomplete ideas and unknown feelings with you so that you know where I am, even when I'm lost. I choose you. So there was something built into our marriage that was actually about meeting that way in which if i love you i want your time that you are alive to be as full and as beautiful as it as it can be i want that mm-hmm. for you and i'm i want you to want that for me and so if that means that you need to go then i want you to go mm-hmm. So I don't really want someone to promise me they're going to be with me forever. Yeah. What I want is for the forever that I have right now to be beautiful. And, and that that infinity of time is actually already here. So if the path moves along and there's there's a need for change, the last thing on earth I really want my partner to do is to squish himself into a relationship with me that is limiting who he can be. Hmm. I tried that. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. That just makes really weird things happen and there are all sorts of consequences and they pop out all over the place. And yeah, and order effects. <laughs> so what do you want someone to promise you? And, and I think that that's one of those meet-not-match questions. But for me, this, again, so the SDGs are a match. What are the problems? There they are. They're in the boxes. If you look at the woman nursing her baby, that's the meat. How do you meet those? You don't meet something head-on. Head-on. You yeah. meet it around you meet it from within you meet it totally so what we're constantly looking for is solutions that match the problem this is the problem this is the match so the if you the problem is poverty add money right that's a yeah match yeah if the problem is you know war then you have to demand peace but that does, that's not how that works. If the problem is the kid won't put the boots on, then you have to demand they put the boots on. No. So when you're dealing with living systems, you have to be careful that you don't get caught in engineering responses.
1: There's a lot of talk these days about imagining new systems, right, new ways of Organizing humans, new forms of democracy, new economic systems, new education systems. And that, you know, people say if we can't imagine it, then we can't create it. And there's this, there's this piece in your book called A Letter to My Imagination. And there's this wonderful line that you say, you say, please don't send the imagination ambassador. From the Department of Human Assumption. Send the other one who lives in the creative belly of evolution. (laughs) I love that. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, because there is so much talk about imagination these days, is what is the tricky thing about trying to imagine a new future for civilization?
0: It's the problem that you can't be sure that your imagination isn't actually informed by all the experiences and ways of knowing that are creating the problem in the first place.
2: That's the problem. Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, have you ever had this, you know, really strong intuition and you're like, oh, actually it was PMS. And then you have intuition that's like so it comes from the center of the earth, and you're like, no, this is intuition, and it is. Hmm. And these these words and intuition and imagination both suffer from this this confusion and conflation of not having a separate entity that we can identify that is the one that is actually coming from our deep connection with life, as opposed to just another manifestation out of the cauldron of our experiences that are just churning around. So most of the time, our imaginative world is actually just churning and rehashing the old stuff. And so... You know, even in the question, how do we imagine a new education system? Do you sense any problem in the question? Yeah. (laughs) So it's, it's,
1: it's there's, first of all, there's an assumption that it's a system, that it's an education system that is kind of standardized, right?
0: I mean, for me, the question would, would be looking very differently. Like what do our kids need? Yeah. How can we give our kids something we don't know yet? Because so, they need to be in a world that we've never been in. So we have to be really careful what we teach our kids about how the world is. Because they're listening. They're watching us. They're watching how we get lost. They're watching how we deal with brute issues at the door. They're watching us. And what are we telling them about how life is? So for me, that's where I would point that question. But that doesn't even look like the same question. Mm, mm -hmm. So so I I think I spend quite a bit of time honestly rolling my eyes at all this imagination work. Because what I see coming out of it and the tone that it's taking place in is completely paced. It's not alive. It's not surreal. It's not. It's not sourcing from that place. It's a bunch of people in a conference center with post-its and whiteboards trying to strategize, which is actually not an ecological process. So I, I really long for imagination in this moment, but I find it in other places um there's a lot of imagination coming out of um all kinds of incredible um music theater poetry out of the everything from the hip hop culture to um you know actually a lot of the kind of indie films coming out of India there's i mean incredible stuff happening but it's not calling itself imagination work
2: Mm-hmm.
0: and it's not calling itself systems change work it just is
1: yeah yeah i think the second that you say we're going to get into a room and we're going to imagine something different like you've lost it, <laughs> it,
0: it, it right went away. it was it just, just it just went away <laughs> oh well, it's so tragic because actually the intent is so pure yeah. And the yeah. heart and the minds and the I mean, I don't want to be in a mockery place with this because it's really quite serious. And I and I I think that it at heart the sentiment is the same sentiment that I'm holding, which is actually that that in order to get to something new, we're gonna have to actually be able to let go of the habits that we're in and and for a lot of people that letting go requires something else to hold on to yeah right and so i think the 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 longing for an imagine you know to cast that vision of what we could do and then go toward it is is really just that thing of letting go of one side of the pool so we can get to the other
1: yeah it's like that longing for certainty right you we know- just we want to be certain that we know the direction that we're going. We're so afraid to just trust that we can figure it out. But I think that part of that is that you need to have the relationships and the trust there with the people that you're on the journey with to feel like you can get to wherever you're trying to go. And if that's not there, then I can understand that, like, desire for wanting
0: the certainty. Yeah. It's just that if you're using your imagination to get an effect, Mm. you're in a linear relationship with that. If it's, let's get together and make art and be imaginative, and we'll see what happens. Then there's an opening for what is actually alive to start opening up pathways. Mm -hmm. But the second, it's two. And the urgency of our time is making everything into a linear causal emergency that needs to have some sort of agency and action and effective response and practicality. and uh Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Perpetuating more of the same. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there is an urgency to be lost together.
1: Warm. And I think this is one of the things that I loved so much about the warm data training um, and having, so, so talk about that a little bit for folks who don't know what warm data is or what the warm data training is, because I think it was just such an incredible experience to be able to be there for a week and to engage in multiple different warm data lab sessions and some of them with different people. And, and I don't know if I told you this, but there was one night After I left, I went to a Thai... I wanted to have dinner by myself and kind of decompress. And I went to this Thai restaurant and I started having dinner. And I pulled out my notebook and all of a sudden, I started writing poetry. Mm. Nora, I haven't written poetry in years. And something was just coming out onto the page. And I don't know where it came from, but it was this amazing thing that just sort of happened. And it was, you know, and I think it was because of the warm data lab. I think it was because of the experiences and something was moving and something was shifting. But so, yeah. So tell us a little bit about that for, for anybody who's not familiar with the work, because I just think it's, it's so important. It's so important.
0: Thank you for saying that. And I love that, you, that that's what happened. And it's my favorite response to combining is when I hear from people, I brought your book and I love it. And I've been writing ever since I got it. And there it is. That's the second order thing that I'm talking about. It's not just about writing a book. It's about the writing is opening up a kind of communication that people are pouring into. There's some expression that's just longing to come through that. And, and so I love that it, it happened with you also. Um, so the warm data training course is a course. I love that course. I love that course so much. Um, and it is, it's, it's work. It's not an easy course. It's, yeah. it's a lot of theory in that course, but a lot of story too. Mm-hmm. And basically it's a, 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 each day is a bringing to in of one or two pieces of theory um, that are underpinning the practice of the warm data lab, which can, if you're not really familiar with the theory under it, it can look like it's really just, you know, some people sitting in chairs and there's some paper and you just walk around. (laughs) Um, but I have felt that it was really needed to share the theory that is underpinning that process so that hosts that are are using the warm data process understand how delicate and how beautiful and how potent the way that impressions that are not told how they should have outcomes, allowing a wildness to come into people's way of, of combining their experiences and not tell them that they have to make an outcome. Um, that that these impressions are mostly things that you didn't say ways that you didn't express yourself the the story you didn't tell the person you didn't sit with um that these deep shifts that we're actually working with are subtle and very very important so so the 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 course is several days and each day there's lots of stories at couple pieces of theory and then an afternoon of of doing warm data lab so you can see the theory in practice um and then the online course works pretty much the same way um this course for me was um really an interesting thing to to bring into the world because in my lifetime I was born into a family in which these theories were being held. so I have a, a kind of unique um, experience of living into them but bef- as as a way of life prior to learning the jargon and the vocabulary and the authorship and the time you know the timelines and the, um, so it, if I were to have learned that, that theoretical work in a university um i might have be teaching it in a really different way but because for me i learned it at a very young age um in life the tone and the holding of that theory and the way in which they shape theories shape each other and bounce off each other is what's interesting Mm -hmm. um and a lot of people who don't love theory are in there learning to love theory with me mm-hmm. and a lot of people who do love theory are loving the theory coming in a different a different tonality um, but it's it's a, it's it's not a lightweight course and it it's just kind of merciless in the different directions from which we come about revealing how and where these processes of knowing and, and recognizing how life makes more life. And, and what does it mean to be in membership with those processes of how life makes more life? So that, that is something that it kind of stems from my frustration of how easy it is to say, oh, we're all interconnected. It's all interdependent. Mm-hmm. We're all one. And then it's like, actually, this is really hard work. Mm-hmm. And what is under this is not just being able to say those words, but being able to live into them. Um, and that's rigor. Um and rigor in the sense of practice. Rigor in the sense of continued exploration and inquiry. Rigor in the sense of integrity. Yeah, integrity is a big piece of this for me. And, and I don't want to pick and choose the theories that allow me to keep my hypocrisies. Okay? Mm. Because what I see so often is, that the really difficult aspect, like, like abductive process, which is a, a theory from Charles Saunders Peirce, is one of the pieces of systemic theory that is, it's that uncle that doesn't get invited to Christmas party <laughs> <laughs> because he always drinks too much and insults everybody, right? And mm-hmm. that's the problem with abductive process is it actually really renders notions of agency and linear causality and strategy to be quite impractical in living systems and for those that don't aren't familiar with that term it's a big piece of theory and we don't have time to touch it here but essentially it's let's think of it as the way one context makes it possible to describe or understand another so the way mm-hmm. The education system is a description of the economic system, but the education system is also a description of the family system and the culture and the history. And history is a description of the education system and the economy. And all of these systems are actually describing and shaping each other. And then I want to ask you, where's the change? Mm-hmm. Where's the action? Where are you going to come into this membership here? Um, and And that's the same question as that, you know, mother nursing her baby question of what does it look like to enter into these systems with a totally different approach?
1: Yeah, I think of it one way that I think of this is how the new gets in. We were talking about imagination, right? And it's like,
0: how does something new get in? Yeah. That's the question, isn't it? Yeah. That's the question, because we are constantly in our habituated processes, but we're also all changing so it, the new will come, and especially I think with purse, he talked about the fact that in that process of making a hypothesis, so if I understand what's happening in or I have some experience of something happening in the educational context, I go to another context and I can perceive things, and I make a hypothesis of what's happening there based on what I have known from over here. Now, perfectly, beautifully, exquisitely, my hypothesis is not correct. (laughs) It's a little bit correct. It's a little bit not correct. And in that, there's a gap. There's a mishap. There's a little bit of a, a scrambling of what could have been, in a machine, a perfect mechanized process. But in this, it is not. Um, there's there's a looseness. And the way you might perceive and make that hypothesis would be different than me. So again, we have a a, a little bit of air, some air gets in. Right? Have you ever been in, in communication with someone who doesn't completely speak the language that you're speaking? And they say something wrong and you understand it in some way that they didn't mean, suddenly yeah. you're you're like way off in space. But actually, something really cool just came out of that, right? Yeah. Or you're cooking something and you, you know, you you screw it up, but it becomes something beautiful. So it's that way in which this, you know, that expression that the reach should exceed the grasp, where there's a little bit of room where something new can get in.
1: I've been thinking about this idea of how something new comes in in the context of how organizations mm-hmm. operate right i think one of the problems we're facing is that we've built organizations that are very mechanistic in the ways that they tackle the issues that they're trying to tackle right we've we've talked about silos between organizations but inside organizations we create these hierarchical structures we define yeah. you know what success looks like in different roles we create performance management systems and define metrics. And we end up creating these toxic organizations that perpetuate much of the alienation and and the problems that we see in the world. And one of the things that I'm really curious about is how, and this is, I suppose, a much more practical question, but how, how do we create organizations that don't do that? When you set out to create the Bateson Institute, how did you think about these things, how it would be structured, how it would work, what it's, you know, it's culture, it's like way of being in the
0: world. So people have been asking about how to create a cybernetic or systemic organization since the Macy mm-hmm. conferences. <laughs> and those were in the 50s. And as far as I can see, no one's ever successfully done it. And um, there's been a whole lot of talk about it. Um, how do we make an organization more like an organism,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? And in our work, there's a few things that we have done that are kind of radical. But I think the most radical thing is that we have not set out to know what we're doing. mm. I mean, there's no one who really has a role, per se. There are things that people tend to be the one that they end up doing it. You know, like, Jaron tends to be the one who deals with the taxes because he can actually read the Swedish tax form. <laughs> tend to be the one that makes sense. Class. I tend to be the one that teaches the classes because I tend to be the one that teaches the classes. Um, but the main thing is we did not start out with any prefabricated mission statement of what this thing was. Mm. So it's been in a state of becoming constantly and us figuring out how to respond to that coming. Now, that's not exactly easy stuff. It's frustrating. And sometimes it's really, really hectic. Okay. So I come from a background of independent filmmaking and art projects and working in media. So I'm, I'm really, I actually in this, maybe it's not even healthy. I don't know, but I love being in production and that feeling of, okay, let's just do this till it's done. I'm super tired. Let's just keep going. (laughs) But it takes a long time to get to the place of being in production. You do a lot of work before you're actually in production. So I like to have a schedule that has open space and slow moments and then kicks into high gear for 11 hours, right? So I'm not looking for the nine to five block with a role and a precise job description. I'm looking for that ecology of possibility that happens when we are doing things that we're not familiar with and someone's covering for someone and somebody's around. That's been another thing that we uh, have tried to put in the fore is recognizing that actually everyone is dealing with very intense life stuff. Hmm. And that in most professional circumstances, that would be put over there. You shouldn't bring that in. And we said no to that. Like we're not in a place in history where that's going to work. You know, we started off our conversation (laughs) before we turned the record button on talking about caregiving. And the fact that you You have to actually take time off work to care for people, to do the things that create life. Okay, this tells you everything you need to know about the problem. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, it's insane to to bring a a child into this world, to help a parent out of this world, to take care of your body, to take care of your garden, to take care of your house. Anything that you're taking care of is money you're not making. Is professionalism you're not producing is yeah it's work you're not doing It's so so how what what is that way in which our own organizations and our way of being can start with that let's don't put that second and let's see what happens yeah because that is life like that is the
1: That is the reason we're here. Those are the things that we should be tending to. Right.
0: Not, right? And it's, yeah. Yeah. So how to take care of each other so that as we take care of each other. The presupposition or the assumption might be that if you do that, no one's going to ever get any work done and that you will fall behind and you won't be very productive. And all I can tell you is, If that's the case, it hasn't hit hit us yet. (laughs) Seemingly, not knowing where you're going and putting caregiving first has made us so incredibly busy. I've never had a more productive year in my life. So Mm. whatever's happening there, we're keeping it. We're sticking with it. I love
1: it. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Um, I know we're a little bit over time. Do you have just a few more minutes? I do. Okay. Amazing. So we've been talking about caregiving and parenting. And something I think a lot about, because I do have a five-year-old, is this world that he's growing up and into. Right? And how do we prepare our children for this world of meta crisis, this world of poly crisis, what can we do now as parents, as teachers, as adults to help support them in what they're going to be facing, what they are facing?
0: Well, I mean, I've been asking this question since before my babies were born, and they are now in their 20s. And, um, It's only at the beginning. So hmm. I, I mean, I think that the, one of the things that I have worked with, with them with was around how to live in two worlds. One world that is the world that is this existing systems where you get grades and you get jobs and you pay tax another world where you're actually tending relational process and you understand that those things that will generate life are outside of the other things that you're doing. And and so this may seem like it's some sort of fractured um, reality to dump on your child, but I, I just have to say that it's what's real. And they had to kind of figure that out on their own as well. You know, the conversations that we could have at home and the way that we did mutual learning together and how we got lost together was a very different kind of communication than the way they were with their teachers in school. Right? So how Mm. you are in relationship intergenerationally is also really different with some people than with others. And and I think for me, the main thing is just... I mean, I'm asking the question constantly, how are we going to improvise together? Because neither one of us knows where we're going. So how do we improvise intergenerationally into being in a, a future that isn't here yet? What are you going to bring with you? What do you need to do? What do you need to have in your relationship that will allow you in those moments to improvise together? And, and for me, that's part about that lost story, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the sort of thing of, of this, these examples of, I don't know what I'm doing and we're going to figure this out together. Um, but, but also I never was that mom that would tell their kid as they were about to get an injection. Oh, don't worry. It won't hurt. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) This is going to (laughs) hurt.
1: It's like the quickest way to break trust with your kid, because your kid is like, "Uh, you just lied to me." <laughs>
0: yeah, we're we gonna get there in a long time. <laughs> right. No, we are not almost there. Yes, it's gonna hurt. Um, but also, I've always been there, so there's been this way in which I have, you know, really tried to let them know that no matter what happens, I am so here. And they've been through stuff. Have they been through stuff? Because their friends are going through stuff. Mm -hmm. And and I was also not that mom who kept promises. Right? You get told by all the parenting books, keep your promises, keep your promises to your kids. And I was not that one. I would say, we're going to go to the park tomorrow. And then if it's raining, I'd say, we're not going to the park today. Mm -hmm. But you promised. Yeah, but it's raining. So... Let's respond to the complexity of our surroundings. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> this is what you do in life. You respond to the complexity. You don't keep promises that are at difficult angles to what is happening. And so I always felt that the, the flexibility that they could have and being able to change their mind and see things that they didn't see before in the situation was more important and that in Mm -hmm. the end, my credibility would be stronger if I, if my kids could see me being able to respond. But that also means that when they had a situation and they made me a promise and the situation changed, I had to stop and say, ah, the situation changed. I see. So, you know, but you, I think that, that piece is really important. Um, yeah, there's a, piece in the book that i wrote for my kids that is about this Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and it's called mama now and it is really about what it's like to be a mama now or a papa it's a
1: it's a beautiful piece i remember when you read that to us during the warm data training and um i don't know if you could see this but i was literally crying through this entire thing it was just (laughs) tears streaming down Mm my face just listening to that because i was yeah i was just thinking about the impossible task of being a mother now to a child in the world that we're in and
0: how to do that yeah Yeah. i mean you kind of have to you have to be ready to go on a on adventure And, and I think the, the assumption is that as the, the adult in the room, you've got to be the one in control and you've got to be the advisor and you've got to be the, the person that's holding the mast in the storm. And, um, and I think that if parents behave that way, they're going to leave their children alone in the storm. Mm. They're going to leave them alone. So, you know, the storm that they're in requires that we relax a little bit. This idea that we'll lose their respect if we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. You know, they need to know that we don't know either. Otherwise, they're all by themselves out there. Yeah. And that's the one thing, right? Bring it all on, but know that I'm here with you. Even if I don't know what to do either. And I just don't want them to ever feel alone. Mm. Well, I think we have come to the close of our conversation.
1: And one of the things I love to ask all my guests in closing to keep this relational web going is this question of who would you like to platform? Or in other words, who would you recommend I have on the podcast?
0: Oh, well. Let's see. I would like, now, see, you probably already have had a lot of folks that I would love to see. But, um, what about Arun Daphne
1: Roy? Mmm. That would be amazing.
0: Invite me. I want to talk to her, too. I love (laughs) it.
1: Oh, that would be amazing. A conversation with both of you. Wouldn't that be
0: amazing? That would be amazing. She's. Do you know? Do you know her? I've never met her.
1: Okay, I um, have to find someone who knows her who, who can make a connection for us.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and um, I think there's something really needed around the different tones and textures of of the communication, and uh, because there's a way in which one tone is really credible and it works like a lawnmower Mm -hmm. the other one and yet in in life we have to tend to this this other form um so so i think this this question of what the tone is and i love her tone another person whose work i think is interesting is jeanette winterson Mm. so these are two people that I, have, I haven't I have seen on in the podcast circuit. So mm-hmm. be cool to. Them.
1: Thank you so much. This has been such a joy and such a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much for all your wisdom. Thank you so much for all the work you do. Thank you for your beautiful book. Combining, everybody, go out and buy it. I promise you, you will not
0: regret it. <laughs> Thank you. And thanks for inviting me in, and good luck with your podcast. It seems like it's going great. Thank you. Thank you so
1: much. If you liked the episode and want to hear more conversations where we explore how a more beautiful world might emerge, subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. If you loved it, support the project at patreon.com forward slash entangled world. Thank you for listening and for coming on this journey together.